Acts 19 tonight. If you turn there, 41 verses. I believe we can get through all of them. Trying to take a chapter a night, which still makes us into a half of a year in a single book. So, As we embark on this journey here in chapter 19, we now turn our attention to the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And in doing so, we step into what will be his final time before he heads to Rome, before he's imprisoned there, and ultimately where he will be martyred. You're going to see now some of the fruit of the ministry on his first two missionary journeys come to fruition. And the important part of that for us before we begin tonight is to remember that you don't always see immediately the fruit that God's going to produce through the labor that you give to him. The Apostle Paul has been in Ephesus before. He's going to go there now. He's been in Macedonia before. He's going to go there again. He's been in Corinth more than once. He's been in Athens more than once. And so now he returns to the city of Ephesus, the church that he spends more time in than any other that's at least recorded in our Bibles. He spends three years there total. But it is in Ephesus that he finds the largest of all of the plots to come against him. And we see that tonight in the final half of the chapter. And so as we turn our attention to the scriptures it says there in verse 1 and we'll pray and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth Paul having passed through the upper region so Macedonia northern Grecian peninsula he came to Ephesus which is near modern day Kolkirk Turkey today Father we thank you for this incredible picture of a life well lived for you. The Apostle Paul devoted to you, no matter what the cost. And Lord, would we be able to glean that truth from this incredible story, this history of the church in Greece, Macedonia, Rome, Italy, Turkey, Lord, Syria, Lebanon, God, we are so indebted to the labor of this one man, our Jewish brother that we'll get to see when we get to heaven. Can't wait to talk to him and ask him what it was like. And so tonight would his history speak to us by the power of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now he asked him a question. And it's important because we're on the other side of salvation. We're on the other side of Calvary. We're on the other side of the day of Pentecost, which happened back in chapter 2. We're on the other side of that. But do you remember that there was a baptism that occurred before people actually were able to be saved in that sense. It was the baptism of John. Because Jesus was still alive, 
But John was at the River Jordan baptizing for the repentance of sin. But because Jesus was still alive, he had not yet gone to the cross, he had not yet died, he had not yet been buried, he had not yet been raised, that baptism could not be effective for anything other than exactly what John said it was for, which was repentance, acknowledgement of sin, and a turning away from that sin. And so these people that are now contacted, some 12 of them in all, we're told they're in verse 7. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. That's an interesting comment for someone who claims to be a believer. Because a believer in Christ Jesus, one of the signs of it and one of the things that happens to you is that you're instantaneously indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to those who believe. And so the Apostle Paul is kind of talking to them about the relationship with the Lord. And he said to them, Into then what were you baptized? In other words, what was your baptism all about? And so they said, into John's baptism. So the picture unfolds before us. So we know that these guys had an impartial view of what it meant to be a believer. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to people that they should believe on him. Notice this. And so we know what the apostle was getting at. Who would come after him? John never said that the baptism with which he baptized anyone saved anyone. He, in fact, pointed the way. He was a messenger. He was that picture the prophet Isaiah would send, the one crying in the wilderness, saying, Make way the straight way of the Lord. That they should believe on him who would come after him, and that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, now check out what happens. They got dunked again. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and boldly spoke for three months, reasoning, persuading, concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, notice the phrase there, they weren't called Christians yet, they were called people of the way, disciples, referred to as individuals and as a group at times. Before the multitude, he departed from them, withdrew from the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I have to remember that correct biblical doctrine leads to correct 
biblical duty. In other words, when we understand the truth correctly, it's not going to lead us on a false trail of things. It will always lead us to the truth of the gospel. And so Paul asked them a question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's an important question. Because they should have been able to answer affirmatively yes if they were actually saved. Now remember, this is, a, this is two decades after Jesus has ascended into heaven. So this isn't like a couple of weeks after the Lord. These guys may have been baptized a long time after John's baptism, but they were baptized in the same way as John baptized. There were still people who believed in the baptism of John over the baptism of Jesus. And they were still doing that very thing. And the reason this is important to us is you kind of need to get your baptism straight. There are people today who believe in baptismal regeneration. In other words, you are saved by being baptized. There are people today that believe that some form of baptism is necessary, in other words, for you to be saved. Scripture doesn't bear witness to that. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul himself is going to go on to tell us, look, I'm actually glad that I baptized no one except Crispus and Gaius. So Paul himself downplays a little bit the essential nature of being baptized. While it is something every believer should do, because Jesus himself was baptized as a sign, it's not something that's essential for salvation. So these guys were very much like those who, during the baptism of John, were just exactly like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They have had a level of understanding of belief, but the picture wasn't complete. They, they had an inconsistency about that witness that had been presented to them. So there were 12 men with an inconsistent witness. They weren't quite sure what it meant to be saved. And there are a lot of people in your life that have that same inconsistent witness. They don't quite know what this whole Jesus thing is about. And when you meet them, when you greet them, when you talk to them, that's where you come in. You get an opportunity to share the real gospel message, the full and complete picture about what it means to be a child of God. That's why it's important for us to have right doctrine. That's why we don't tell people, look, you, you, you're not saved unless you've been baptized. That's not true. That's close in some people's view. But it's off just a little bit. If you are saved, you should be baptized is actually the correct way to say that. Because Jesus said, believe and be baptized. Paul said, believe and be baptized. So there's a picture of baptism. But it's for the purpose of identification, not for the purpose of salvation. And so we need to make sure that we have our doctrine correct when we talk to people about what it means to be a child of God. The witness of the Spirit is absolutely one of the indispensable proofs that you're actually a child of God. If you don't have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life, you don't understand what that is, then it's highly likely that you don't know the real Jesus. Because anyone who is a child of God is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. It's a necessity for salvation. So these guys had it off just a little bit. Help people with their understanding when you meet them. 
Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says this, In him you also trusted, speaking of Jesus, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the spirit of promise. In other words, there's a, there's a guarantee, much like we use the term wedding ring. The promise is given to you, and that promise is the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life. The Holy Spirit begins to speak to you. The Holy Spirit, in that sense, is in you. It goes on in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until redemption, the purchase possession to the praise of his glory. The reply of these 12 guys, the, the vagueness of it, the uncertainty of their faith, if you will, it was pretty obvious that they didn't really know the Lord yet, so now they believe. And the same is true of those Old Testament saints. You see, Abraham had sufficient, sufficient faith to be listed in the hall of faith, but Abraham's faith wasn't complete until Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross. Abraham believed in the coming Messiah, and he believed fully in the coming Messiah. And so when Jesus was raised, so Abraham, being there in Abraham's bosom, named after himself, had the full picture presented to him. As disciples of John the Baptist, the, these guys knew that there was a Holy Spirit, and that Spirit one day would baptize uh, God's people. Matthew's Gospel makes that very, very clear. Uh, but they were just kind of on the fringes. They were kind of going on their own. There are a lot of churches that are on the fringe. They kind of teach partial messages. They don't teach the whole counsel of God's Word. Sometimes when I get asked, you know, what's the, what's the greatest of all of the distinctive things about Calvary Chapel? One of the very most distinctive things is we're one of the few churches in the world anymore that continue to teach the Bible chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse, line by line, precept by precept, so that you actually understand the full counsel of God's Word. A lot of churches have shifted to teaching topically, and they pick a passage here and pick a passage there, and they skip things, like the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Well, if you study the book of Acts from chapter 1 to the end of the book, you're going to find out that this whole book is really the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, as recorded by Dr. Luke. And so you would understand that. There's a couple of strange things that happen here, and people are tempted to, to believe that people can only be saved maybe if you just lay hands on them, or if you're going to see someone baptized, you need to go through a bunch of things to make sure that it's done properly. And that's not the picture, because you have to remember that Acts chapters 1 through 10 are really a transition period in the history of the church, the apostles' ministry and all that's going on there uh, to the Jewish people. And now it's shifted, and it goes initially to the Jewish people, now it's shifted to the Gentiles. And, and so during this point in time, kind of the way that the gospel is presented is actually, is actually widely accepted uh, in, a, in a singular format. And it's like this. It begins in Acts chapter 10. We see that in the life of Cornelius. People who don't know the Lord hear the word of the Lord. Exactly what Romans ten seventeen says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so they hear the word. Exactly as Jesus would say, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. 
You have to believe. In other words, there's your part. There's God's part. God's made a plan of salvation. He sent Jesus into the world. That picture is very clear in Scripture. And so you have to believe it, though. You can't just hear about it. There are a lot of people that hear about things, but they don't believe it. Amen? Uh, It's amazing what you can find on Google. You can hear all kinds of things. It's a good idea that you don't believe a lot of it. Because you can kind of put anything on the Internet. But in this case, when God's speaking, what he says is absolute truth. So if he says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, that's what you need to do. And so you hear the word, you believe on Jesus Christ, and then Scripture tells us there in Ephesians 1 that immediately they receive the Spirit. And it is then that they're baptized. Notice the order. Hear, receive, believe, receive the Spirit, and then they're baptized. Why are they baptized? Because during that period of time, it was pretty easy to be a closet Christian. And so publicly, when you did something like that, anybody that was in that surrounding area would know immediately that you were identifying with exactly what this passage says, that you're a person of the way. You're part of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ because you're believing on the only name that can save. For there is no other name, remember we saw in chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. There's only one name. And so you're identifying with what happened now when we're baptized, we, we go to that, in our case, we have a pool that we set up out here in the, in the courtyard. That water represents your old life, and so you're brought to that water, and when you're standing in it, you're making a profession that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see that? You're identifying with the fact that your old life is gone. You're put underneath the water. And you were raised up in new life, completely cleansed of your sin. You're saying Jesus did that because you professed him as Lord. And you're going to walk in newness of life. So when we are baptized, we're identifying with the full gospel message. We're telling everybody that's watching that I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe that he alone died for my sins. I believe that he alone can cleanse my sins. And you are raised once you're under the water in the power of the Holy Spirit to live a new life. And so baptism becomes important for identification, not for salvation. The Gentiles in Acts 10 didn't receive the the Spirit by means of water baptism, and neither did these guys. The Spirit is something that is given to you instantaneously upon salvation. And so the fact they didn't know that means that they had a, a little bit of a tough time understanding. So what, what was kind of going on with these guys? Sometimes people would, would look at the story and they'd go, well, these guys were already saved, but they didn't know. I don't think so. Some people would also say, well, they were now baptized in the Spirit. I don't think so. I think Paul sensed that these men did not genuinely know the Lord himself. And so he allowed them to come to the knowledge of the gospel, and then he took them out in baptism, baptized them. You see, sometimes we misidentify things with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In our world, we have dancing in the Spirit, barking in the Spirit, laughing in the Spirit, running in the Spirit, uh, Spirit dunking, spirit you name it. We got all kinds of things that people say, well, you know, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. 
generally it's not only not the work of the Holy Spirit, it may be the work of another spirit and there's nothing holy about it. Very often those things that are chaos, because our God is not a God of disorder, but a God of order, and so when it's chaotic and causes people to think weird things, you can be pretty well assured it's not of the Lord. There's not a special anointing of that. When God does a work of the Spirit, God gets the credit for it. Men don't get the credit for the work of the Spirit. So when someone comes to you and they claim that they have the ability to possess the gifts of the Spirit and dispense them at will to their own glory, you can be well assured that it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And it has everything to do with that particular person. And so the work of the Spirit always, 100% of the time, testifies of God doesn't testify of man it can't be attributed to somebody's hands it can't be attributed to a gift that they have that no one else has it is always attributed to the lord only period scripture repeats that every single time that there is a gift that's attributed to the spirit it's to the glory of god you see in this day they just were missing a little bit of information The old covenant had ended, but it wasn't ended by John at the Jordan. It was ended by Christ at Calvary. Baptism of John was important in in the Jews' time, but for us, it's no longer valid. You, You don't need to get baptized a dozen times for repentance. If we had to get baptized for repentance, um, we'd need to leave the pool set up all the time. We just have people leave service, go get baptized again. We are just identifying with the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul's explaining to these guys truth so that they can walk in it. That's so important. It's one of the great functions that that we as pastors uh, get to have in in our ministry life. We get to explain the things of God. To give some distinction to what the Lord's already said. We just try and help people understand it. What God did through Paul for these 12 men was something that we shouldn't look at and try and repeat today. Paul lays hands on them, but have to remember that Paul's establishing the church. He's establishing the credibility of the church. He's letting people know, look, these guys are, are genuine believers. And so he lays hands and prays for them. And then he says something pretty interesting. He, he's going to kind of move shop, if you will. And he's going to set up in, in the school of Tyrannus. And, and during that day in the Grecian culture, basically people had private schools, just like we would have private schools today. This appears to be a school that was assigned to a, a man named Tyrannus. And, and the good news was it was right next door to the synagogue, so he kind of was able to you know, minister to people as they were coming and going from the synagogue. But... Back in that day and time, people found it very fulfilling psychologically and sociologically to just simply converse. And so, unlike today where nobody talks to each other, they just text. Ever watch that? I have literally sat down in a restaurant and watched people sitting on opposite sides of the table texting each other. It's like, do your lips work? But during that day and time, people actually took great pride in oratory skill, and it was something that people wanted to do. So in school, people would get together, and they would actually talk. 
much like one of the very few uh, areas where that still goes on in, in a great deal is if, if you get a law degree, you're going to go and spend a lot of time actually pretending you're in court and talking through cases and working over case law, all those kind of things. You'll actually have to debate. They did that for fun back in those days. I think sometimes, well, attorneys do that for fun sometimes now. I actually like to do that. I like to talk to people. It's like, what do you think? What are you doing? At the school of Tyrannus, they would sit and talk about those things. And so the gospel actually infiltrates this school so that people were actually talking about the gospel in the school that was in this guy's house. And undoubtedly, from there, the message went out to the rest of the region of Ephesus. Next, we see seven guys that didn't have enough power. First, we see these guys with not enough information. Now we see some guys without enough power. Verse 11, And now God worked in unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. Would you please underline that? There are things that were done in the New Testament period, especially during the time of the apostles and the disciples, that are not to be repeated. There were unusual miracles, in this case done by the apostle Paul. Because you're going to find out that Paul got to do a few things you're probably not going to see here in church at Calvary Chapel South Bay on a regular basis. So if someone finds my hanky, no one's going to get healed by it, okay? Just saying. You might get sick from it, but you won't get healed by it. And now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons, I don't have one of those, just saying, were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases, diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. And then some itinerant Jewish exorcist. Now is that like, that's like a movie right there. Seven itinerant Jewish exorcists. I mean, I, I could come up with a storyline for this. As you can almost imagine them. They've watched the apostle. Now, look, see what this is. They've watched the apostle Paul. The apostle Paul has done all kinds of amazing things. They're following him around. They're in a culture and society where people actually do talk to each other. They weren't texting. They're watching Paul do these things, saying, you know what? I think we can make money at this. So they are itinerant Jewish exorcists. They're wandering around and and they begin to do the same things that the Apostle Paul decided, you know, they thought they could probably do them too. And look, it's a hanky. I mean, how tough can this be? But for the Apostle Paul, when he let his hanky go, when he got rid of his apron, people actually were cured. Evil spirits went out of them, identifying him as having a direct link, really, to the power of God. And then some of those guys took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, does that sound kind of funny to you? It does to me. You can imagine, I don't actually know him, but you know, Paul, we saw him do it, so whatever he says, that goes. By the Jesus whom the Apostle Paul preaches. That is the equivalent of saying, we haven't got a clue, but this looks pretty good, and it's kind of popular here in Greece, or in Turkey. So he begins to say, 
see if we can pick up on this. And also there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest who did so. So it kind of got popular. It's like Pop, Paul's going around healing people. People are becoming released from demonic possession. And so next, they, they actually come across somebody who's truly demon-possessed. Now, this is how you know when somebody is really able to do this in the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit, and when they went to uh, demon-possession-releasing school on the Internet. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know. And Paul, I know, but who are you? I would have liked to have been here for this one. I would just sit on the bench on the corner and just watch this whole thing go down. So first you got Paul's flying hankies and his apron. And people are actually getting healed and saved. They're being ministered to. And then you got the fakers. We don't really know who he is, but we think Paul's got the power. There's no power in the Apostle Paul. There never was. There was power in the name of Jesus. There's power by the Holy Spirit, but Paul didn't have any power. So these guys are naming Paul. That's the wrong source. Amen? That's why people say, well, you know, I, I, got, I got healed by this pastor. or that." And I have to correct their theology. and say, you didn't get healed by that pastor. If you got healed, you got healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That pastor may have spoken the words, but it had nothing to do with him. Because if you're looking to a man to heal you, you're going to stay sick a long time. God can heal. Man, not so much. He's not supernaturally. Doctors can do lots of good things. So the evil spirit says, look, they come upon this guy and Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom the Spirit was the Spirit leapt on them. So they're trying to drive this evil spirit out of a, out of a guy. They name Paul instead of the Holy Spirit, instead of Jesus. And the Spirit leaps on them and overpowers them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This is a bad day if you're an itinerant Jewish exorcist. You don't want this on your business card. No YouTube videos. This is not what you want to have happen. And look what happens. This became known to both all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. You know, there's a reason I don't spend a lot of time trying to correct false teachers. There's a reason I don't spend a lot of time going down and protesting people who are doing things that are obviously not of the Lord. Because eventually what happens is the work of the Holy Spirit is this. The Holy Spirit reveals the falsehood of those things. It becomes very well known to anyone who watches. I'll give you an example, Benny Hinn. You know, when you make 2020, 
and they show your team tearing into envelopes behind the scenes at a convention center, pulling out the checks, and the prayer requests are piling up on the floor, um, pretty much nobody's going to believe anything you have to say after that. God is able to square away those things. Now, if God calls me directly to confront something like that, I see it, I do it, but I don't spend a lot of time following people around trying to figure out why everybody's doing crazy things. Because there's a lot of people in this world wandering around doing crazy things in the name of Jesus. The name of Paul, the name of church, name of lots of things. But ultimately, when their plans unravel, because they can't cast out demons because they can't heal people, because they do not have the power to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, because they can't do a single thing that they say they can do, and eventually that knowledge is known, and then people go, that's a false prophet. And the name of the Lord is magnified because you know what? Paul actually healed people. The apostles actually raised people as Jesus did from the dead. Blind men were able to see and lame men could walk. And so there in Deuteronomy 18, when it gives us the signs of someone who actually is a prophet of God, there's a very, very, very specific qualification that one might want to look at before one says, thus says the Lord. And that is when a prophet says, thus says the Lord, and the things that he says do not come to pass, then you shall know that he is not a prophet. So you better be really sure that you're speaking for the Lord when you speak for the Lord. Praise God, we don't have the same penalty as in the Old Testament, which was uh, death by stoning. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And also many of those who had practiced magic uh, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. I love this. This is awesome. Paul's not out doing a, you know, he's not out doing a campaign and picketing everybody and, you know, we need to boycott Walmart or whatever. You know what he does? He just lives his life before God, rightly, correctly. He loves the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, his neighbor as himself, and just allows God to use him. And you know what happens? The falsehood becomes very, very, very clear, and people repent from just simply seeing someone who just lives the truth. Don't get overly concerned with all the stuff that's going on in the face of the earth. Just get concerned with being a true representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he brought all their magic books together and he burned them. And they counted up the value of them. Now imagine, you see today you can go on Amazon, you can download books for, you know, 2.7 cents or whatever. I mean, it's crazy what you can get books for. I don't even know why people write anymore. It can't possibly be profitable unless you sell a million of them at a couple of bucks apiece. But you, you can download books all day onto your Kindle or, you know, your reader on your pad or whatever, on your iPad. But during this day and time, a book would be very, 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 
very valuable. Chances are the single book would be worth more than an average person would make in a year. Books were valuable. So these people wasted a boatload of money on these books on magic. But so powerful was the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul, the people said, man, we wasted our money. We bought a bunch of junk. And so they burned them, and the total of that was 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. You see, it would have taken any, that would have been a sight. These guys coming together, piling their books up, and, and burning the books in the sight of everyone. Books that were extremely, books were so valuable that very often, if you had a book, and, and let's say the information in it was either proven to be incorrect or maybe it was just outdated information. They literally recycled the books then. They took the parchment, they took the paper, they took the papyrus, and they actually soaked them normally in water to disperse the ink and then wrote over them again. That's how valuable they were. So these guys came to the conclusion that, look, <laughs> the real God, the real Lord, the real powers in the Holy Spirit in the Apostle Paul. But these other guys, we just watched a dude claiming that he could cast demons out of somebody and they got beat up and left naked and ran away. When the Lord performed miracles, he usually had three basic purposes in mind. And just like Jesus, he showed human compassion on human need. Jesus was a, was a man like us. He had a compassionate, a tender heart. So often Jesus did miracles just simply to meet the need of a person. But that need of the person, which would teach them also a spiritual truth. And that spiritual truth would give him credit as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Messiah. So he got to their heart through maybe their stomach. And when he got to their heart, he was able to convince their mind that he actually was the Messiah that was promised. And so Jesus always did miracles in a way that brought glory to God's plan of salvation. Don't miss that. You know, I, I will tell you, I get asked from time to time to come, you know, pray over somebody that someone thinks is demon-possessed or whatever. And, and sometimes I actually do go. But only if we can pray in the name of Jesus and only if we can give glory to the Lord and only if they understand that there's no power in the words that I say, there's power in the name of Christ. That's the reason that we go pray for people. Whenever we minister the truth, the other thing that you see here is I want you to, I want you to notice how spiritual warfare unfolds. Paul's being used. There's work going on in Ephesus. So what happens? Counterfeits. Satan always sends his counterfeits. He says, look, there's a great work going on. So I'm going to send some traveling Jewish exorcists. And they're going to say words that are very similar. Jehovah's Witnesses say words that are very similar. Mormons say words that are very similar except they have a different Jesus 
and a completely different plan of salvation. One that includes you've got to belong to an organization to be saved. Anybody ever tells you you've got to belong to this church or that church to be saved? You can automatically know that they're not telling you the truth. Because it's not an organization that saves you. It's the person of Jesus Christ that can save. And he saves by grace and through faith, not because you did something for him or you understand some words. The truth of the gospel is made known. And you believe on that gospel message and you're saved. Not because you join a church. Wherever God's at work, Satan will usually try and counterfeit. This chapter ends with this picture in Ephesus of of a mob of indignant citizens. This is the famous silversmith's riot. And it is largely a story, and we're going to read it as one. And when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Acacia, remember Macedonia is northern Greece, Acacia is the peninsula that's directly adjacent to Corinth, uh, to the west, to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Uh, Little does he know, I think, at that point how prophetic that will be because he will spend uh, his, his final months of his life in Rome. And so he sent unto Macedonia two of those who had ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, and he himself stayed in Asia. So remember there's the Aegean Sea, around the Aegean Sea, on the eastern side, modern day Uh, Lebanon, the edge of Syria, Turkey, uh, Greece, wraps around the Grecian peninsula over to Acacia. And and so this whole picture takes place around the Aegean Sea. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. And again, notice they're called the people of the way or the way. These are believers. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana. Now the temple of Diana, as I said last time, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. More than 430 feet long, more than 150 feet wide, more than 50 feet tall. uh, Able to house some 20,000 people, if they were standing underneath its portico. And brought no small profit to the craftsmen. Remember Diana, Artemis, the same uh, being, goddess of fertility, and so a uh, very popular shrine to go to because as we said this morning, uh, sex and religion were mixed during that day and time in Greece. And he called them together with the workers of sim- similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. I'll tell you, the quickest way to get people mad at you still to this day is to mess with what makes them money. And so I I get a few letters. I was over at a city council meeting uh, in Gardena doing the invocation a few months ago. And guess who's making a presentation? Mr. Lawrence of Flint. He did not look like he was happy that I was praying in Jesus' name while he was talking about expanding his casino. You you, you see, when you mess with people's money, they get really upset. 
They don't like you. It was true then, it's true now. Especially when you call people to repentance, especially when people's lives are being transformed, especially when they stop going to the bars and they stop visiting the strip clubs and they stop buying uh, pornography and they, they start living their lives for Christ, people who do that stuff for a living get really tweaked. And he said, men... You know, we have our prosperity by this trade. And moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Well, that's because they're not gods that are made with hands. They have nothing to do with the true and the living God. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, like it was Pretty sure it was already in disrepute. But also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now this is political speech at its finest. It's like he's trying to make himself out to, to seem as though he cares about the temple of Diana, its magnificence, its beauty, its economic impact to the community, and all of the lost tax revenue. But really what the dude's after is his own pocketbook and his own well-being and his own welfare. He's making a really good living by selling these little shrines to the princess herself. And of course the whole world didn't worship Diana and now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out this saying. And this was the saying of that day and time. It was widely known all over Asia, Asia Minor specifically. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Why? Because you can travel today and still see the temple of Diana in Ephesus. Still a huge footprint. The whole building's not there, uh, but the columns and, and some of the portico is still, still standing. And the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. The theater is still there. It can hold in excess of 20,000 people to this day. Having seized Gaius, Aristarchus, the Macedonians, Paul's travel companions, and then when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. And some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent with him or sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. They were worried about him getting killed. Because these folks were a little bit upset. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had even come together. They drew Alexander out of the multitude, and the Jews put him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew... All with one voice for about two hours. Great is Diana, goddess of the Ephesians. It's like a football game. It's like, go Raiders. We know you're losing, but go Raiders. We know you haven't scored a touchdown in three weeks. Go Raiders. It's kind of the same scene. They had blind allegiance for reasons only they know. Didn't have anything to do with the truth. When the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, 
What man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Now, there is a a small temple that is supposedly still associated with Diana, and it actually contains a meteorite. That is also still there in Turkey today. You can go see that as well. Didn't fall from Zeus, though. It just came out of orbit. And he says, look, fell down from Zeus. And therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you know, it's interesting when you have one artifact, you got one thing that you can point to that looks like somebody's got a legitimate truth that that one thing outweighs all the evidence. Because the evidence was the Apostle Paul actually healed people and the people that were shouting, great is Diana, goddess of the Ephesians, were accomplishing nothing. But because they had a rock, which no one could explain, that fell from heaven, somehow they're the brains of the outfit. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers, of your goddess. And therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring the charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar. You see, they finally got the pictures. Like, look, we're acting like fools. We're not being logical. We're just worshiping a rock. And there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said all these things, he dismissed the assembly. Again, God steps into the picture. And even uses their own human reason to say, look, what are you guys doing? Family, if if the enemy can't deceive He'll try to destroy. If he can't destroy, uh, in, in essence, tear down, he'll murder. And so this whole group of men, the, the silversmiths that were by trade, uh, influential people in the community, when it's all said and done, God's still able. This seemed like a hopeless situation. And God actually turns all of this, which looks like, man, Paul's dead, Aristarchus is dead, those following Timothy's going to be dead, Alexander pops out of the multitude, and who knows what's going to happen with him. The climax of all of this is the Lord is able to deliver, even when it seems hopeless, when it seems like this, this mob is going to win. This was in a day and time, by the way, when there was no news media. There was no radio, there was no internet, there was no social media. The whole city manages to be in in an uproar. But all it really was was an angry mob. And, And God is more than a match for an angry mob. Max Lerner wrote in his book, An Unfinished Country, he said, every mob in its ignorance and blindness and bewilderment is a league of frightened men that seeks reassurance from a collective action. That's really all it is. You know, sometimes when people are lost, they yell really loud.
When people are hurting, they yell really loud. You just need to be there to pick up the pieces. You need to be there to tell them the truth. You need to be there to love on them. You notice how the Apostle Paul, they didn't go do a Peter thing and grab some swords. Well, let's fight our way out of Ephesus. You know, if we just kill a few of them, maybe they'll leave us alone. No, you just trusted God. You may come across a silversmith's riot in your life. I encourage you to do the same thing. Just trust God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the amazing witness of the Apostle Paul and pray the Lord as we can learn and draw from his incredible steadfastness in you. Pray that you'd give us that same heart, Lord, a heart that's able to say uh, we trust in the living God. We don't trust in temples. We don't trust in meteorites. We don't trust in frivolous things that cannot say we trust in the name of the Lord. And your word declares that they that trust in the name of the Lord will not be ashamed. Lord, that even when it seems dark, it seems dim, seems like it's not going very well, you are more than able. And through you, we're more than conquerors. So we bless your name for that strength. Pray that you'd encourage us. Lift our heads up to see that our redemption draws near. Lord, we can't wait to see you face to face. In the meantime, give us boldness. Lord, if there's a riot that wells up here, may we be the peaceful ones that stand and trust you. May we be the kind ones that rest in your almighty power. When the false prophets come, would we just simply be found preaching the truth so that that falsehood is very clear to those who are watching. We love you. We bless your name. We thank you for tonight. Pray that you would bless us as your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.